This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, where you can meet like-minded people fighting for a new vision of aging. Find out more at carp.ca. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Christine Ross for Libby's Nimer. There are new guidelines for diagnosing Alzheimer's disease. And Aretha Franklin taught her fans about respect. Now, five years after her death, she's providing a lesson about estate planning. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Medications that cause drastic weight loss are raising specific concerns for older adults. No matter how you lose weight, through dieting, bariatric surgery, or the new injectables like Ozempic, you're also probably shedding muscle, a particular concern for older adults. The more muscle someone loses over the age of 65, the greater the risk of a fracture or fall, which can be fatal. Taking drugs like Ozempic, the loss of muscle mass can be drastic, and experts say they still don't know very much about how older adults fare on these new medications. And those predisposed to osteoporosis need to be extra careful with these medications. At 100 years of age, former U.S. Secretary of State Henry Kissinger is still attending high-level meetings globally. This week, he met with China's top diplomats in Beijing as the U.S. looks to reset relations after months of tensions. The centenarian co-authored a book recently about artificial intelligence and warns that governments should prepare for the potential risks associated with the technology. A naval aviator killed during the Japanese surprise attack on Pearl Harbor has been laid to rest more than 80 years later in his home state of Maine. A funeral with full military honors was held this week for Ensign Stanley Allen at Veterans Memorial Cemetery. He was just 25 when he died. He was trained to fly a float plane from the USS Oklahoma and was among 400 who died on the battleship. Nearly 390 of them remained unidentified before the launch of the 2015 program in which bodies were disinterred for DNA analysis. Since then, more than 350 have been identified. Every year on July 18th, Nelson Mandela's birthday is celebrated in South Africa. People volunteer for 67 minutes to honor the number of years Mandela served as the country's anti-apartheid leader, much of that time behind bars. But 10 years after his death, attitudes have changed. A younger generation is disillusioned with the country, his party, and the anti-apartheid leader. They feel he didn't do enough to lift the fortunes of the country's black majority, where white South Africans still earn three and a half times more than black people. Manja, manja. Ladies from all over the world come in and share their traditional home cooking. A New York restaurant run by grandmothers from around the world is a big hit with customers. Owner Jody Scaravella pays homage to his Nona by showcasing grandmas from all around the world at his popular Staten Island Italian eatery. About a dozen women work at the 30-seat restaurant. International women, the majority of whom are matriarchs. They create and cook the cuisine. It's become so popular that you simply just can't walk in and get a table. 
The cooks, who are all referred to as Nona by the diners regardless of their ethnicity, range in age from 50 to 90 and are well-versed in each culture's distinct cuisine. Well, this is one for dog lovers. Hundreds of golden retrievers gathered at the Scottish Highlands this week to celebrate the breed's 155th anniversary. The four-day event welcomed 466 retrievers from a dozen countries, including Canada. The gathering event included games like haggis hurling, tug-of-war, and scurry. The first litter of golden retrievers was born in 1868 to a tweed water spaniel, a breed now extinct, and yellow flat-coated retriever. I'm Christine Ross, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Alzheimer's disease experts are revamping the way doctors diagnose patients by creating a seven-point rating scale based on cognitive and biological changes. Unveiled this week at the Alzheimer's Association Conference, the change promotes a numerical system to assess the disease progression, similar to one used in cancer diagnoses. These changes come as new treatments, including blood tests, offer faster and more effective Alzheimer's diagnosis. We reached Canada's foremost expert on Alzheimer's disease and dementia, Dr. Sandra Black, a senior scientist at Toronto Sunnybrook Hospital who calls the recent developments game-changing. A seven-step staging scale was introduced in 1989 in the context of Alzheimer's disease by a person called Riceberg, and it was called the Global Deterioration Scale. And he was smart enough, this group was smart enough that they even had the pre-dementia stages, which were stage one and two and three, where you had no cognitive decline, but there was a family history or some reason, or you're beginning to have a little bit of memory trouble. And then when you start to get to the pre-dementia where you have what we now call mild cognitive impairment, and then they went through stage four, moderate, uh, stage five, even more severe, stage six, very declined, and seven, like total care. That was in 1989. What's interesting is they're kind of rediscovering it, and they're using a similar method. And it is actually, it has more stages than just saying somebody's got mild cognitive impairment or they've got dementia, Alzheimer's dementia. Sometimes we don't always acknowledge the past, but it's very similar, except now it's informed by information about actual biomarkers. Right. So now we can know if somebody is in the early stage because we can do a blood test before they're symptomatic. We can do a blood test, and now there's some other ways we can confirm that, like with a PET scan or an MRI scan, and they know that they're in trouble. And the reason that's important is because we're starting to do prevention trials, and that's why the blood tests are so important. Well, let's talk a little bit about that, because that's a fairly recent history with blood tests. I mean, it's it's less invasive. Um, how accurate is it compared to, you know, lumbar puncture or the other ways that you're doing the diagnoses? Okay, so first of all, it's a brand new development. And just let me put this in perspective, um, because an LP is actually more accurate, but it's more invasive. It's not as available. It can actually have some complications. But it's, it's, the, it's the fluid around your brain, so you actually have larger amounts, right? What we're measuring in the blood is what sort of leaks out to the brain and what uh, out of the brain into the blood. And the amyloid gets, as it gets deposited, it goes down. And it seems to then at some point start to drive the tau, the hyperphosphorylated tau, which starts to go up. So what they're mostly measuring in the plasma right now in the blood is actually the hyperphosphorylated tau. It's called the tau. Mm-hmm. Tau is in the tangles, amyloid is in the plaques, right? 
And that's what they're measuring. And it, there's, a, there's some new devices, which like I still can't get my head around it. They're measuring a billionth of a gram in the blood. It is a very exciting, in my view, game-changing development because you can detect the disease early. You can confirm it with a PET scan and other ways to, because it's not quite as accurate. But you can do it as a blood test. And the big pressure that it's going to bring to us is when somebody does look like they're positive and they're already symptomatic, you've got to get to them fast. Right. right? You can't wait around for two years or one year, you know, to see a specialist. But but that that's kind of a conundrum because, you know, there are new treatments, um, for instance, Lakembi approved in the States, but they're only effective yep. apparently if prescribed early in the diagnosis. And we're hearing that in Toronto for some family doctors, they say it's taking up to a year just to get an, an initial so assessment. That will, if we get access to these treatments and also to the blood tests, and I think that's going to be the challenge for the Canadian, I mean, if they're... they're Lacambi has been approved, and the other one that everyone's talking about is Donatamab, and it's likely going to get approved as well. Right. There's another one, Aducanumab, that's conditionally approved in the States. We've been all in, in, in some of these trials, and, and in fact, we have some people are, who are getting the Biogen Aducanumab in a two-to-one double-blind study because the FDA, the federal, uh, the, the, uh, the, 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 the group that approves in the States, mm-hmm any drugs, required them to do another study. So what I think is going to be the challenge for Canada is, first of all, if it gets approved, and we'll often follow Europe on that, um, these, at least three, maybe two, uh, look a little better than the first one, then uh, we're going to have a problem because it is that you're, you're going to know, kind of like stroke. Let me just give an analogy to stroke. In the 1990s, if you had a stroke, there was really not much we could do. Then along came something called clot busting agent called TPA. All of a sudden, we had to completely change the system because you had to get in there within eight hours. And if you're outside that window, you couldn't be treated because it was too dangerous. So we're going to have something akin to that, but not eight hours. We're going to have months, maybe, three, four months. And people are going to know that the person is in trouble because they can do a blood test if it's appropriate. You're considered a pioneer in this field, and I have a two-part question. What has been the most exciting advancement that you have seen, and what do you think will happen in the next decade when it comes to treatments? I think the blood tests are game-changing, because now with a very simple, not very difficult thing to do, you're going to get a hint that something's in, the, the, the person really does have something that's going to unfold. You can even do that in a pre-symptomatic stage before the people are, you know, people are sick, because there's some uh, there's some genetic advances that can tell us, you know, who's in trouble and who's going to be in trouble. So it opens off the possibility we can get to people before they've had the stroke. Like you, you have a transient ischemic attack or you have angina, you go to the emergency department, they find out that you've got a blockage, they do something about it, and then you don't have the stroke and you don't have the heart attack. So the idea of the pre-symptomatic treatment when people are at risk because they have the protein in the brain, which is accumulating for four, or 20 years before they know it, that's the other game-changing thing about this, because we may begin to be able to prevent it. But then we have to also get the people who we know benefit if you get to them early enough, even though they're starting to have symptoms and they're going to decline. And that's what the you know the trial reports were about uh, at the meeting, including the Donanamab study, which showed that it could get rid of amyloid rather quickly, in some people in six months, maybe almost a third. Mm-hmm. Another in about 50% of the year, and then 
by 18 months, almost 80%, they were getting rid of amyloid, which means then you don't keep treating. You would interrupt the treatments and then be able to do boosters by measuring the blood, just like you would in chemotherapy, for example. Dr. Sandra Black, thank you so much for this. My pleasure. I think it's a very exciting moment in the history of understanding Alzheimer's and other dementias. That was Dr. Sandra Black, a senior scientist at Toronto's Sunnybrook Hospital. I'm Christine Ross, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, expensive court fight over Aretha Franklin's will provides a cautionary tale. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, fighting for financial security for our seniors. Find out more at carp.ca. Queen of Soul is offering a cautionary tale about estate planning and the do's and in this case, the don'ts. When Aretha Franklin died in 2018, it's believed she left no will, meaning the bulk of her fortune in real estate, jewelry and music royalties would be split among her four sons. But after her death, not one, but two handwritten wills were discovered. And this month, two of her four sons went to court to contest one of them. A Michigan jury has ruled that a will from 2014 found in her couch is valid and overrides one found four years earlier. We reached Toronto lawyer David Mills for some tips on estate planning. In this province, is a signed will found posthumously in someone's home a valid document? It can be, so it it depends. There are essentially two types um, of wills, uh, broadly speaking. There's a formal will uh, that's the kind people think of when they think of what they would do with a lawyer, which is a type document that's signed, and there's a couple of witnesses that sign. And then there's a what we call a holograph will, which is what you're talking about with the Aretha Franklin estate, which is a handwritten document uh, that's written by the, the deceased person or the testator, we call them, mm-hmm. and it doesn't have those same formalities. It just needs to be written by them and signed. So in this province, it's acceptable? Yes, it is. As long as you've either you've met one of those two statutory tests, either a formal will that meets all the, the execution requirements, which means it's been signed uh, by the testator in the presence of two adult witnesses who also sign. Mm-hmm. That's sort of your lawyer type. And that could be stored in someone's safe deposit box or under their sofa cushions or wherever, uh, as in this case, or there could be a a holograph will, which is the handwritten one, and either of those are acceptable. How often do you hear of cases like this, of these so-called holograph wills? Uh, All the time. Um, A lot of what we do uh, at my firm and in my estate's practices deal with those kinds of issues, Uh, and there are disputes around uh, whether a particular document meets the necessary formalities to be either a formal will or a holograph will. And then you get fights around what's the meaning and effect of the document, so how to properly interpret its words. Um, And you get those, unfortunately, you get those disputes, whether a lawyer wrote it or not, but they can be more pronounced when someone did it themselves and doesn't appreciate the uh, complexities that the language they choose might cause. And what happens in Ontario if someone dies without a will? So it depends on their family status, effectively. So a married person, that means legally married, common law 
uh, is treated differently. But a legally married person with no children, their spouse would get everything. If there are children, then the estate is divided up between the spouse and children, depending on how many children there are, what the proportions are. If they don't have a spouse or children, then it would go to their living parents. If they don't have living parents, then it would go to their siblings, and so on. There's a whole uh, chart you have to go through to determine who gets who gets what, uh, but there's sort of a a process you have to go through in determining that. It's you know it's not a subject that many are comfortable talking about. Um, you know what you want to do with your possessions after you die. It's awkward. It can be anxiety inducing for many. So, what age do you recommend that a person gets a will, and how often should it be updated? The the trigger point for most people to do this um, is children. Uh, a lot of people that's what pushes them sort of over that anxiety line into thinking, well, I really should deal with this because now I have kids and I have that responsibility to think about what happens if I'm gone. Uh, So certainly I always recommend it for people with children. Otherwise, it's for anyone who wants to have that say of what happens, right? And the more assets someone accumulates, the more significant an issue that is going to be for them. Once they've done that planning, uh, our general... Uh, suggestion to people is they take a look at whatever planning documents they have in place, so their will, any you know insurance that's in place, powers of attorney that they've done, any trusts, depending on how complex their situation is. They dust off those things and look at them every three to five years just to make sure it's it's all still good with them. Or they look at it if they have any major life changes, uh, a major you know a death in the family more kids being born, uh, a marriage, a divorce, you know, anything significant that happens, one of the things on their to-do list should be, I should look at my will and see if it needs to change. And if I'm not sure, I'll ask my estate lawyer. And grandchildren too, right? What's a grandchild? Grandchildren too, for sure, because that can change what you would want to do both with your own estate uh, planning. You know, do you want to, some people skip generations. Mm -hmm. So you might have kids who are successful in their own right, and don't really need to inherit from you, but you want to provide for your grandchildren, so your children's children. Some people do that and sort of skip a generation. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, there's you know mixed planning that can be done that, that sees everybody in that family tree benefit. The other thing I hear and have actually witnessed, and I'm sure many people know these stories, sadly, too often, um, you know, after someone dies, it becomes this big division within siblings or within a family and tears a family apart when it comes to um, divvying up the estate. How do you navigate that without inducing all this tension? Yeah. Um, One of the things that I always recommend is communication. Um, Where these things get contentious and often litigious and do really cause permanent damage to family relationships is, is when someone's estate plan or their will uh, is a surprise to one or more family members. So, uh, you know, maybe I have three kids and I decide two of the three are going to be treated better financially than the third one. And uh, my reasons for doing that, I've never shared while I was alive. And I don't provide any guidance in that respect, but this third kid doesn't do as well. Or I decide to prefer one over the other. The, the one who doesn't do as well under the will is going to question why. Mm-hmm. And then they're going to probably point the finger at the the kid or kids who are getting most of the money and say, what did you do? You must have twisted dad's arm, right? 
um, and they can get into fights about who's responsible for this change. Is it really what dad wanted? Is this a, a valid will or is it the product of your undue influence? I'm going to question whether dad had the requisite mental capacity to make that will at that time because I'm hurt and I'm upset about the decision. David Mills, thank you so much for this. My pleasure. That was Toronto lawyer David Mills. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Christine Ross for Libby Zneimer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Hadi, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Nimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.